Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as you command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabath, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation fi finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and for the story of redemption. The Lord, as we learn more and more about, we understand that, Lord, there's so much more to know. And as there's so much more to know, it gives us a great, a huge picture of who you are. And Lord, it actually lifts up our vision of who you've made us to be. And so, God, would you open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts this day? Would you help us to hear you, Holy Spirit? And would you put up a guard, a hedge of protection around this place, around our minds, and around our hearts in Jesus' name, that, Lord, what we would hear is your voice and all others would be silenced in Jesus' name, that this would be a place of freedom, of healing, and of wholeness because what a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. What a powerful name it is 
the name above all names, the name of Jesus. It's in that name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. All right, kids, I'm going to need your help as we get started this morning. How many of you like to do crazy, risky adventures? Can I see your hands? How many? Okay, awesome, awesome. I see some older kids also raising their hands. I see you, Tommy. Thank you for the hand. How many of you have ever done this kind of crazy adventure? Gone down one of these ridiculously scary water slides? When you get close to that tunnel, it's scary, isn't it? You're just like, oh my goodness, am I actually going to let go? But then once you do it, it's so fun, right? Well, how about this? Let's, let's, let's amp it up a little bit, a little riskier. How many of you have done what Will Kempf did? Skydiving. This is Will Kempf, by the way. His face doesn't always look like that. But it does with all the G-forces, right? Like, how many of you ever, let me see your hands. How many of you have done skydiving? Wow, okay, just a couple, just a couple. I would love to do this, but I'm old now. And my body says no, right? So, but, all right, I got one more for you. Are you ready? This one's, this one's ridiculously scary, super risky. By show of hands, how many of you have ever done any plumbing work in your life? <laughs> Listen, if you don't know plumbing, don't try it, okay? Because if you start, you're in it. And you're not just a little in it, you're all in it. Okay? It's super risky. But the reason why we avoid these kinds of things is because of the risk of failure, right? The pain that comes when we fail at it. But here's the question for us this morning. What if there was a way to mitigate that failure? What if there was a way to reduce the chance of failing? One thing that could make it a little less scary. Like, for instance, if you went skydiving with a bungee cord. So you still have your backpack on, but you have a bungee cord just in case. Right? Or if when you're getting ready to go down the water slide, you have scuba gear on. Right? Because the thing that's scary about the water slide is you, you might not be able to breathe. You're going to suck in all that water. But with scuba gear, you're going to be just fine. Or like with plumbing, if you have an extra hand and... No, no, no. Don't ever do plumbing. Plumbing is terrible. It's scary. All it does is get you wet. Right? Can you see in this picture? There are three arms here. You want to know where the, the, the other, this other arm is connected to? He's underneath the water in this picture. Don't try plumbing, friends. Word to the wise, okay? What if there was one thing in our lives, in our relationship with God, that guaranteed victory? If there's one thing, would you want to know it? I mean, I think the obvious answer is yes, but we always have a but. Yes, but let me hear it first, because I just want to weigh it out. Yes, but I'm not sure I'll be comfortable with it. Yes, but I'll have to try to figure it out for myself. I think we've walked long enough, all of us, with God to realize that that's just not the way God works. He calls us to step out by faith in the way that he's calling us, and he meets us there. If there's one thing, would you want to know what it was? Because, friends, this morning as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Joshua that we're calling Fighting for Our Inheritance, that is precisely where we're going. 
Now, just a big picture recap for those of you who haven't been around, maybe missed a week or two. Um, we are in the book of Joshua, and the book of Joshua picks up in the story of God's people as they're on the banks of the Jordan River. They're in the land of Moab, and they're looking into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And they're there now for the second time. They've already been there once when they were first freed from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God brought them there, and they said, nah, there are giants there. We can't do that. So the God who literally just parted the sea, who literally just sent 10 plagues to destroy the gods of Egypt, who literally just brought them through the wilderness, feeding with bread that rained from heaven, they say, well, we can't do it, so God must not be able to. And what we find as we just get a big picture intro into their story is their story is a lot like our story. We have this book that's full of all these incredible stories of what God has done. It's called Redemption. And yet we look at the, the giants in our lives and we say, well, no, God's not able to do that. I kind of have to figure this out on my own. Or I need to partially obey, partially hold back because I'm just not sure. And so God's people are there for the second time. And they have an opportunity to enter into the promised land. And God says to them this time, I want you to remember to be strong and courageous. And do not fear, for the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. He says that again and again and again in the opening sentences of the book of Joshua because he doesn't want them or us to miss it. The game changer, the difference maker is the presence of God. The thing that makes all the difference is when God is with you. But it's not just God being with us. As Tommy preached a couple weeks ago, it's also us being with one another. We're not called to live this life alone. We're not called to fight our battles alone. Change and victory is a group project. It's a group project, which is why God calls us to not stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but to continue to meet daily, weekly, and, and each year by year so that we can grow up together into Christ who is our head. And then last week, last week we talked about what does it look like to live as though Yahweh rules, and we really pressed in to some parts of the scriptures that we don't tend to spend a whole lot of time in, talking about the spiritual realm and understanding that there's always been, from the beginning, two parts of reality, the physical that we see and the spiritual that we do not. The Bible often talks about it as heaven and earth or the heavens and the earth. And to see that what happens in heaven impacts earth, what happens on earth impacts heaven, and that there is a way to understand and a necessity to understanding that relationship because that helps us to understand what's actually happening in our lives and what our calling is. We saw in the person of Rahab, which her name means what again? Overcomer. Rahab, the prostitute. Overcomer. She's the one who when God sends his messengers into her life, she looks around and she says, this is what the impact of my culture on me and my own best efforts to make lemonade out of lemons has pr produced. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, has sent two messengers my way to offer redemption, to offer a different way of living. And she goes all in, all in. She risks everything because she believes that the God who saved his people through one Passover could also pass over her home and her family from that same impending destruction. And as we shall see, he does. She is indeed an overcomer, but that's because she believed in the chesed, 
the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's where we've been. Today's theme is this. This is how we know we cannot lose. Let me say that one more time because some of you have had that kind of week. Some of you have had that kind of morning, right? And you already feel like you're losing. Today we are going to talk about the one thing that lets us know the victory is guaranteed. This is how we know we cannot lose, friends. I hope you're ready. Verse 1, chapter 3, the spies come back and they report at the end of chapter 2, Yahweh is with us, we can do this. And Joshua is giddy. He is giddy. He gets up early the next morning and he gets everyone riled up. We're going and we're going now. And they go down to the banks of the Jordan and it says right away, they have to wait there for three days. And I want you to continue to hear this, the whisper of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. Every story whispers his name. So when God's people are in the wilderness and they need to wait there three days before they can cross over into the promised land, which is a picture of heaven, who does that remind you of? What does that remind you of? But three days in the tomb before all heaven breaks loose. Hear the whisper of our Jesus from verse 1. Then recognize... Now, what's going on in this passage is nothing short of a focus on the presence of God. It talks about the Ark of the Covenant 21 times in two chapters. Do you think God wants us to, to hone in on this Ark? Well, what is the Ark? Well, here's a picture of what it, what it looked like. It was a wooden box that had gold plating on it, and you have two angels on top, the seraphim, and this place right here is called the mercy seat of God. This is where God would sit on his, listen to this word, throne. Last week, we talked about the throne room of God as being in heaven in the spiritual realm. The Ark of the Covenant is the place where the spiritual realm breaks in to the physical realm. This is a living, moving, tangible place where God, the spiritual realm, breaks in to the physical realm. Now, this box isn't living, but there's a living God in, that resides there. And he says, I want you to fix your eyes on the Ark, or said differently, I want you with every ounce of your being to focus your attention on my presence because I'm about to do something you've never seen before. I'm about to work miracles, plural, in your midst that you've never understood before. I'm gonna show you an entirely new way. That's his language to them. So fix your eyes on my presence and follow where I lead you. I love how from the beginning of that, he says, but here's step one, get ready. Wash yourself. That picture in the Old Testament of ceremonial cleaning is a way of God's people saying, all the grime that has been on me up to this point is now off of me. Friends, do you hear the mercy of God in that? How many of us every day walk around with grime just from what we did this week and we feel like we have no other choice but to carry it with us? And God invites his people from the beginning, set yourselves apart. The word that we use for that is sanctify yourself because I've sanctified you. Do to the outside of yourself what I am doing 
to the inside of you and get ready because I'm about to work miracles in your midst. And he says that the very first one is that he's going to drive out the enemies of Israel before them, right? This is his promise. But he says, this is how you're going to know that I'm going to drive out the enemies. Here's the proof. Here's the one thing for you to look for. My presence will stop up the waters. My presence will stop this flow of the Jordan River, and it is going to be piled up in a heap, right? So he says, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Coming down from above means from the north. It's it's flowing down from the north to the south, and they're going to be stopped up. This is the thing that God himself points to as evidence that he is going to then drive out all of their enemies before them. If it seems like I'm repeating myself, it's because I don't want you to miss it. He's pointing to something that we need to see. I want you to recognize that this has always been the way. We just talk about the Israelites being taken out of Egypt through this Exodus event. And you remember when they're running from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they find themselves up against the Red Sea, right? And the Red Sea in ancient Near Eastern uh, cosmology, when you went to the sea or to the place of the waters, the, the, the boiling, trembling waters, what did you experience but the chaos of Sheol or Sheol, the underworld? It was the doorway into hell. And so for you to, to go into the sea was for you to choose to die and go to hell. Understand. So when you think about the story of Jonah, And they cast him overboard into the sea. And what meets him in the sea but a big fish that they would have thought was the Leviathan, a sea monster, because that's what happens in the sea, right? So you have this place where they've now come, and it seems like Yahweh God has led them to hell. And instead, what Yahweh God has led them to is to a moment where he's going to show them how what could have and should have been their ending is anything but their ending. Because it says that a mighty ruach, which is translated in Hebrew as one of two ways, a mighty wind, ruach, or spirit. A mighty spirit blows through, and it says that the waters split which in Greek, the way you say split, schizo. We know that word, right? Schizophrenia, right? Split. He splits the waters of death and hell. Don't miss this. And they walk through on dry land to what again? What is it called? They walk through the Red Sea to the promised land. And the promised land is a picture of where again? Heaven. Do you see what God is communicating to his people and what he's always communicated to his people about what he does and what one thing you can look for to know that if he can part the seas of hell and death themselves, he will drive out all of your enemies. Now, that in and of itself would have been enough, right? That's a pretty crazy story. But just so we don't miss the point, it gets even clearer in the book of Joshua than we see in the book of Exodus. 
because he comes to the Jordan River and it says that it's swollen with snow melt. It's in parentheses in your English translation, but don't pass by the parentheses. We'll come back to why. But it says God's presence step in, right? The priests are holding the ark and as soon as their feet go into the water, what happens? But the waters split. They stop. And did you, did you catch the name of the city that the waters of death were rolled back to? Adam. And did you catch how far down that drought of death and hell went? All the way down to the Sea of Arabah, which we call the Dead Sea all the way back to Adam and all the way down to hell. When the presence of God enters in to the chaos of death, death stops in its tracks. This has been the way from the beginning for God's people to find life even through death. I want you to see, however, that there's still more just in case you thought, we're done with this. Yeah, I get it. No, you don't, because there's more. And the more is going to blow your mind. Here's what I mean. The place of rebellion. Remember last week we talked about this crazy reality of the sons of God, these created angelic beings that were also imagers of God that we call angels. In the New Testament, they're all lumped together with this term angels. But archangel is the higher angel, and then you have these lower angels. And some of that could have been confusing, but don't miss this. In Genesis chapter 6, it says that these sons of God, these created angelic image bearers of God rebelled in the same way that humanity rebels. They want to be God rather than trust and follow him. How did they rebel again? Do you remember? They came together with the daughters of Eve and they made image bearers of their own to fill the earth. They tried to take Yahweh God's place. Why does that matter? Well, because where they came down is called Mount Hermon. Can you guess where the floodwaters come from in the Jordan? From Mount Hermon. They flow down. And when the snow melts, the waters of the Jordan rise. And let me explain it to you this way. The mountain of angelic rebellion becomes the source of chaos that gets in the way of God's people entering the promised land. Are you following how incredibly important it is for us to understand that it's not simply a flooded Jordan River, that there is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality that's happening the entire time behind the scenes. And by the way, Mount Hermon, you know where that is? It's in the region called Bashan. Bashan is known as the place of the serpent. And just in case we still missed it all, in Hebrew... The word that we talked about last week, we talked about God when he brings divine judgment upon the sons, the offspring of those angelic creatures, the giants. He says, I declare harem warfare. Harem, devote to destruction, is the same root word as Hermon. 
the mountain of divine destruction. The mountain where God is going to have to do his, he's going to have to pour out all of his wrath so that these, these uh, interlopers, these invaders, these who've come to take over his planet can actually be removed. It is a very spiritual battle behind a very physical reality. And the, the thing that blows my mind is it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, those are some cool facts that you kind of dug up, and, and man, they're, they're wonderful, but why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because this is the battle that Jesus fought and won, and this is the freedom that we are called to live into. When Jesus comes to, the, to planet Earth, when God, the true Son of God, the only Son of God, the only unmade Son of God, the eternal Son of God, when Jesus puts on human flesh and begins his earthly ministry, where does he begin it? At the exact same place of our story today. It's a Jordan River where the Israelites crossed over. And when he steps into the waters, he's guaranteeing what? But that the days of death are numbered. And do you remember how the story is told in the Gospels? When Jesus goes down into the water, the waters, which again represent chaos and death. It says that the heavens, schizo. The heavens divided. They parted. The pathway is no longer down, friends. It is now up because of what Jesus has done and because of who Jesus is. This is why it matters. Jesus, as he's walking through on his earthly ministry, he has this moment where we all read it and we say, this is amazing, where he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if we know our geography, we know that he's actually in Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi happens to be in the region called the Bashan. And the Bashan happens to be at the foothills of Mount Hermon. Why does this matter? Because when Jesus says... The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He's not talking about simply a future reality. He's declaring what he's doing in that moment at the footsteps of the, the center of sin and death and all of hell being poured out on his creation. He is knocking at the door, knocking on the gates and saying, you will not win. This is why I've come. Now, it, it, it's, mm. there's more. There's more. Because the very next chapter, after Peter declares this, it says that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain. And there's no mention of what that mountain's name is, but the highest mountain in that region, which is 6,000 feet higher than any other mountain in that region, is called, guess, Mount Hermon. And it says he goes up at the top of that mountain. And up at the top of that mountain, God declares this, this is my son whom I love. In other words, not any of the rest of you who've claimed that role and authority. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. On the top of that mountain, Jesus' glory is unleashed. It's like when Hulk Hogan rips his shirt off when he gets into the ring, right? Like you see his glory, but significantly more glorious than Hulk Hogan, right? Let's just be honest. But here's the reality. Jesus is at the top of that mountain declaring this, even at your headquarters, 
even at your strongest point. I am the only son of God. I have true authority over you. Do you know what Mount Hermon is called? In the ancient times, they called it the home of Baal. It's where Baal lived. Do you know that there's an actual place called the gates of Hades? That's not some figure of speech. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. And they would do all sorts of sacrifices there. And they actually had a hole that when you sacrificed, it would go down and you'd fall into the sea through that hole. Jesus is declaring war, spiritual war, on those who have rebelled against him and who have been leading his people astray. For us, friends, what that means is we get to see the heart of God here for us. We get to see that Jesus was going to stop at nothing. He wasn't going to just deal with some of the stuff on the outside of us or some of the stuff that's a little ways down. He was going to go after the heart of darkness at Mount Hermon and in each one of us. He's not okay with there being a fortress for darkness in our lives. The New Testament word for that is stronghold. He's not okay with that. And Jesus isn't going to stop. He's going to break down the gates. He's going to reveal who he is on the top of that mountain. Oh, and by the way, you know what Jesus talks to? Remember Moses and Elijah who meet him up there, right? If you want to talk about picture of what resurrection looks like. Moses and Elijah meet him up at the top of that mountain. And it says, again, it's missed in the English translation, but it says that Jesus talks to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. Yay is right. (laughs) Yay is right. Because what he was talking about was his cross, where he would pass through the waters. But those waters would actually drown him, where he would go all the way down so that he can come all the way back up, so that those waters would never hurt his people ever again. Are you starting to see now why when Jesus walks down the Mount of Transfiguration, the very first thing that he encounters is a demon-possessed little boy? It's because he's in the headquarters of darkness and he is declaring, you're done. But friends, the darkness will not go down without a fight, which is what you see at the bottom of that mountain. Jesus on the cross, when he is paying the price, when he's literally going through the waters of death, he quotes from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my my groanings? Do you know what else it says in Psalm 22? Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. When Jesus is crying out on the cross, he doesn't choose a random psalm. He knows what he's saying, and he knows why he's saying it. He's engaged in a battle that has a physical component. The cross hurt, the nails hurt, the scourging hurt, but none of it even compared to the hell that was being poured out on him on the cross for us. 
None of it compared to the way that he was being attacked on the cross by the bulls of Bashan. The wrath of God poured out for us and the rage of the darkness that thought they won when all along they were losing. Friends, this is the moment that Jesus says, that God says, we can look to. It's the moment that the Red Sea points us to. It's the moment that the crossing of the Jordan points us to. It's the moment that will tell us the one thing that they needed to hear and we need to hear. If Jesus has overcome death, if he has stopped the flood of death in its tracks all the way back to Adam and all the way down to hell, then we can know he will drive out our enemies from us. Deliverance, friends, is kingdom normal. Jesus is interested in driving out all of the darkness from us. Listen, Isaiah chapter 61 says this. This is what Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news. Yes, what good news? That the king has come, that his kingdom has come. And with that, he says, restoring of sight to the blind and freedom for the captives. It's why everywhere Jesus goes, he does what? He preaches the good news, he heals, and he delivers. Preach, heal, deliver. Preach, heal, deliver. Preach, heal, deliver. Why? Because he's not simply about the forgiveness of sins. He absolutely is about the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. But he is about a kingdom that drives out all darkness. If my sins are forgiven, but I live in a world that looks like hell, I still lose. But if he brings a world that looks like heaven and brings heaven and one day will result in only heaven, then all of my sins are forgiven because there is no place for sin in the kingdom of heaven. And there's no place for brokenness in the kingdom of heaven. And there's no place for darkness in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has come to bring a kingdom. He talks about it in Matthew's gospel. He says, I've come to bind the strong man, so that I can loot his house. When he loots the house of the strong man, what is he talking about? Who is he talking about? But us. He's taking back what belongs to him. And it's you and it's me, friends. And that happens once for all when we put our faith in Jesus and then we apply through the power of the Holy Spirit more and more and more of that to our lives. It's called sanctification. Same thing he commanded his people to do in Joshua. Same thing he commands us to do now. Sanctify yourselves. Apply the truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus died to win for us. The victory that is ours in him. Apply that truth more and more and more. And as you do, you're going to see less darkness and more light. And as you do, you're going to deepen your intimacy and expand your authority so that the mission of Christ might be multiplied. Amen. Beloved, when Jesus sends out the 72, which, by the way, is the exact amount of nations that fell in Genesis, the nations that were divided after Babel, after Babel, when Jesus sends out the 72, he's saying, I'm going to go after all of them. 
they're all going to be mine. You remember they come back and they say, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Do you remember what Jesus says right then? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The kingdom of darkness has been undone. The strong man has been bound. And now we get to live like we believe it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or as Jesus said to his disciples when they came down the Mount of Transfiguration, which is called what again? Mount Hermon, the capital of darkness. He says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the heart of the sea, and it will listen. What is he saying? Is he saying, choose any random mountain you want. Just put God to the test and see if God will move it and move it where you want it to go and throw it into the heart of the sea, whatever you want. Is that what he's saying? Or is he literally at the foot of Mount Hermon, the place of darkness, the scariest place on earth. And he says, when, if you have just a little bit of faith in the king, in my name, you can say to that mountain and its influence in your life, go back to hell from whence you came and it will listen. Amen. Beloved, deliverance is kingdom normal because we are part of a movement that Jesus calls light, light that drives out the darkness. The question for us, friends, is will you make it your new normal? Will you join us in making it our new normal? It does not mean that the only thing we're ever going to talk about from this day forward is the spiritual realm and the demonic. But what it does mean is that in the same way we talk about sin and about brokenness all the time, we are never going to shy away from talking about the influence of the darkness in our lives because it's just as real and it's just as part of the equation of getting whole and being healed as anything else. And Jesus came to rid the world of all of it, of all of it. So when he says, let us come then with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, do you see the, the language here? The throne of grace. We just talked about that, the mercy seat, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He's saying this, come into my presence together, and there I'm going to give you everything you need to drive out the darkness. And there I'm going to show you why the therefore is therefore. Wait, where's the therefore? It's not... Oh, 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 oh. There is no therefore here, but there is one. The therefore in this passage is pointing back two verses where it says this. Because we have such a great high priest who schizoed the heavens, who tore them open for us, because that's our Jesus, and the path is no longer down, but up. Therefore, we can come with incredible confidence into the throne room of grace, 
and find that the God who has all authority in heaven and on earth can help us with anything and everything, all the way down, even to the place of darkest darkness in us, the Mount Hermon that we struggle with, every one of us, the place where it seems like darkness wins, when, friends, it's already lost. Fear has already lost. Shame has already lost. Anger has already lost. Perversion has already lost. Pride has already lost. Deception has already lost. Death has already lost. Satan has already lost, friends. We know it's true because Jesus died and didn't stay dead. He went all the way down and came all the way back up. He went down into hell and came up victorious. He put the, th the authorities of this world to open shame when he rose from the grave and he says, come and follow me. And if you have just a mustard seed of faith, you will say to that mountain, move, and it will move. And friends, we have been watching that happen in our midst. Just a little bit of faith, just a little. And we're saying to this mountain, move, and it's running away. It's going back where it came from. And Jesus and the authority and glory and power of the king is being manifest and experienced and grown in our midst. And we want every one of you to know that freedom. Every one of you to know that healing. Every one of you to know that wholeness. Every one of you to be trained up in how to live out the fruit of resurrection life. How to live as though you have the spirit of God himself in you because you do. And you don't need to live in the wrong kingdom normal. You don't need to live as though the fear and anxiety that you carry with you is normal in your life. That kingdom has been overtaken. It has been done. It is finished. You don't have to live as though shame is the only norm you're ever going to know. It's not. We watch as Jesus, and only Jesus, draws near and heals the deepest wounds that oftentimes we don't even know we're carrying. And we watch as that same Jesus then turns to those voices, the presence of the enemy in our lives, and says, your days here are over. Get out. And they leave. And then we watch as folks who have experienced some healing and deliverance begin to walk in it and hear the same call that God, Jesus said to his disciples at the foot of Mount Hermon. You need to deepen your intimacy and expand your authority. Walk in this truth. And as you do, even those kinds of demons will come out when you cast them out in my name. Beloved, it is nothing short of thrilling to watch God move as he's been moving. It's utterly exhausting to watch God move the way that he is moving because there's so much that in our lives and in our culture we're taught not to deal with 
And it all comes out because he wants a completely clean and whole person. As a church, he has called us to be an army, to be an army of healthy, equipped, whole followers of Jesus. We invite you, friends, to come participate in that for yourself and for everyone around you. You don't need me to tell you the voices that you're listening to. They've already made themselves clearly known when I simply spoke their name. What I am going to encourage you with, though, is you don't need to listen to them anymore. And when you are healed and whole, they will start listening to you. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Here's how we know. Because Jesus gathered for the Passover supper, that yearly celebration when the Israelites would celebrate the blood of the perfect lamb, that red that they put on their door, the same red that Rahab tied out of her window, so that the impending destruction would pass over them, Jesus said, that is always pointed to me. That is always pointed to me. As they ate that supper and they came to the third cup, the cup of redemption, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, you've always thought that this pointed simply to you. But this has always been about my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the bread, he took the cup, the blood. He said, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Did you hear it? The one thing, the one thing that allows us to know that our Jesus will drive out every enemy before us, that our Jesus intends to set us completely free, and that we, like Rahab, can stake our lives on that. Will you come? Will you come to this table in a way differently than ever before? Not because it's the right religious thing to do, not because you don't want to look bad in front of other people. Will you come to this table and here find a very different kind of grace than you thought was available to you? A grace that literally sees you all the way down to that darkest place. And a promise that because this is true, you don't have to live like that anymore with fear, anxiety, shame, pride, abuse, all of those voices, friends. He can and he will silence, cast out, and make you whole. Jesus, we pray that even as we consider this invitation this morning, that you would continue to do what you've been doing all morning, that you would speak to each of us, Lord,
not just all of us, each of us in this place and online, that Lord, each of us would hear that not only do you see the places where we're stuck, not only do you understand the attacks that have always been the norm in our lives, but don't need to be, but that those are the very places, Lord, that today you want to heal us and set us free from. And so we say, here we are, Lord. Have your way. Here we are, Lord. Show us the way forward. We want more than we even thought was possible. And we thank you that that's exactly what you came to bring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.